Hey, this is Kate Nocera, and you're listening to No One Knows Anything, the BuzzFeed News Politics Podcast. It's the first episode of our summer series where we're bringing you episodes every other week featuring a deep dive interview with someone we think you'll find interesting, someone we think is interesting, we hope. This week, we're talking to Sarah Cliff. She's senior policy correspondent at Vox and has been deeply covering the highs and lows of U.S. healthcare for years and years now. Finally, it's 11.15 on Thursday morning, uh, and I'm telling you that because by the time you listen to this, who knows what could have happened. Hi, Sarah. Hey, Kate. How's it going? Good. It's good to talk to you. To give our audience a little background, you and I met in 2010, I think. Yes, I think the summer or fall of 2010. 2010. In the Politico newsroom. In the Politico newsroom. We were both covering healthcare, though you knew a lot more about it than I did at that point. And I learned everything I knew about American healthcare from from you. So I thought you'd be a good person to, you. you know, chat with at this moment where we're still having the healthcare policy conversation. We are. Um, I keep, (laughs) I think I've gotten to the point where I've like finally gotten slightly tired of it. Um, On my podcast, The Weeds, I've been trying to do fewer healthcare segments and uh, they keep making me do do more. (laughs) So I might be reaching the breaking point we thought we'd never get to of too much health policy news. Never. I mean, you actually tried to leave health policy news behind you entirely, right? I did, and it sucks you back in. <laughs> <laughs> you can just never go away. So what, what were like? What were you doing? Like you, you tried to get away from it. What was your thought process in in changing jobs? Yeah, so I spent about a year here at Vox managing our graphics department, which was really fun, and I really enjoyed. You know, I spent like six years writing about the Affordable Care Act. I felt like. I wanted to try out something new and different, either a new beat or a new job, just because, you know, this it it seemed like the fight was dying down. This is like before Trump got the nomination and before Trump won the election. Um, So I figured I'd, you know, do something else. And that was all wrong. (laughs) It was not. And so pretty quickly after the election, I switched back to covering healthcare full time. And I was excited. I should say I was excited to do it. It's a really critical time for this particular topic. It's it's a crazy time for for this particular topic. I mean, uh, today, Thursday, the Senate is releasing yet another sort of iteration of their plan to repeal and replace Obamacare. Do you like what what do you think is going to happen? I actually, I, I will ask you this question back because you are the more experienced Congress reporter of what do you think will happen. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I get a lot of those. And I used to, right after the election, I would make these super confident predictions that they were going to repeal Obamacare. It just seemed like, you know, they they had the votes, they had the support. Um, but those all turned out to be wrong. I thought it would happen much faster. I thought by spring they would be done with this. And I was duped by their very confident um, position Mm -hmm. that they could get this done. And, and, you know, I don't know. I mean, what do you what do you think? It feels very toss up ish to me now. Like it could go either way. I think it's I think it's a super toss up. I think I am out of the business of really making predictions about Congress anymore based on the last, you know, year and a half. Like who the who knows what's going to happen. But 
my guess, if I was a if I was a betting woman, which I'm not, um, but if I was a betting woman, I would say that Mitch McConnell gets something done, or he is like, well, you didn't do it because of Democratic obstruction, and damn those Democrats, and like when they want to come to us and fix healthcare, we'll we'll be here for them. Yeah, but the other so the other like key pressure is like they still have Obamacare and like that is not a thing you can just set on autopilot. Like you have to manage you have it. To do I stuff. think there's yeah. You have to do stuff. So you either if you like don't pass this bill, you have like this marketplace that's struggling. You have like 38 counties right now with no insurance companies signed up to sell next year. Mm-hmm. Um so so like they've talked a little bit about passing like a stabilization bill, but it's really hard for me to see like this bipartisan like um phoenix rising from the ashes yeah. of a repeal attempt yeah one one question i i do have for you because i do think you do an excellent job at explaining this incredibly wonky difficult process to your readers and i know you've been doing it for a really long time a lot of it's just like in your brain you understand it you get it <laughs> how like how do you translate it to to the Vox audience, you know, to, to whoever's clicking on Sarah Cliff. Um, yeah. So a lot of it is from the experience of covering it for a while. Um, but a lot of it's also relying on outside experts who have been doing this much, much longer than I have. Um, and like, I think a good example of that was, um, back with the house bill when, they put out some revisions and there was this like super wonky provision that was really hard to read, but essentially exempted Congress from their own law. Um, and that wasn't one I found. That was one, a law professor, a very, very smart law professor named Tim Joss, who you know mm-hmm. as well, um, yeah. that he kind of found in the language. And he was the one to like kind of like walk me through the cross references and like this and that. Um, so, you know, it's part of just having the experience. I have like my trusty highlighted copy of the Affordable Care Act on my desk. How long have that, you had um, that? You've, you've brought I, it with you to a couple, couple. Oh yeah. I think I got it. I think I got it at Politico <laughs> Yeah, and it just traveled with me to the Washington post and now to Vox. And it's like super dog-eared and highlighted at this point. Nice. Um, so it's both like, you know, my little copy of the ACA, my brain and a lot of outside experts. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with Sarah Cliff. We're back now with health policy reporter Sarah Cliff from Box. Um, I think one of the the best stories I read this year was was your story um, in Kentucky about uh, people who voted for Donald Trump and are on Obamacare. Could you walk me a little bit through like the reporting of that? How did you come up with the story and sort of, you know, how did you, how did you find these people? Yeah. So I kind of, that story I started working on shortly after the election where we started noticing that there was, you know, a lot of people who signed up for Obamacare who lived in these areas that voted overwhelmingly for Trump and that this was especially true in Kentucky, this you know, state that has had amazing success with its Medicaid expansion and also just went really overwhelming for Trump. And it seemed like there was this contradiction there. So I started a little bit with data, just like figuring out where this might be most true. And um, this outside group, Enroll America, 
that does a lot of work signing people up for Obamacare, they hooked me up with county by county data on um, on the uninsured decline. And then I was able to match that to county data on voting for Trump. So I was able to kind of zoom in on these three counties in um, southeastern Kentucky that really like fit the story I want to understand. Um, you know, from there, I reached out to some local enrollment groups who said I could tag along with them when they were doing some visits. And then the breakthrough kind of came when I got there and I was talking to one of the enrollment workers um, and I expected to meet like some tr some Trump voters who were on Obamacare. But the thing that like I think really pulled together the story was the Obamacare enrollment worker who voted for Trump. Right. And right. Like, the woman who's literally signing people up. <laughs> yeah. She's enrolled. She's like more people than she can count in Obamacare. Um, and she supported Trump. And that that was the part that like blew my mind a little bit. And it was honest. I don't think on that trip I met a single Clinton voter. Every Obamacare enrollee who, enrollee who would tell me who they voted for, they all voted for Trump. Um, it was, yeah. I, I went into the trip thinking like, oh, I don't know if I'll find the person I want to talk to. And it was like, it, it was just everywhere. Yeah. yeah. What, like, what, what, did did you walk away with like a clearer understanding of that calculus? Yeah, I think, you know, I went in, and this is possibly like a bit of like a, paternalistic view on my part or naive um, because I talked to a lot of experts who felt like people just didn't understand they were on Obamacare. Like Kentucky had called their Obamacare program Connect. They had Medicaid expansion, which goes by the name of like whatever private Medicaid provider you have. So a lot of the experts I talked to before thought, oh, you know, these people just didn't know they're on Obamacare. And like, certainly if they had known, they wouldn't have voted this way. But people got it. Like they knew they were getting their health insurance from the Affordable Care Act. They had just listened to Trump make these promises. Like, I'm going to make health insurance amazing. I'm going to cover everybody. Like they were really looped into the election and they voted based on the information they saw in front of them. Um, so I think that- They voted it, based on what he was saying. Yes. Which, right. Yes, which he's <laughs> not delivered on in any sort of series. Like, you know, the Republican plans, they don't deliver on any of this promise. And, you know, he will still give interviews saying he's going to cover everybody while supporting these plans that would cause millions of people to lose coverage. So I think, yeah, I really my views were really shifted by that reporting trip. And, you know, I think I had underestimated how people thought about their voting decisions. But, um, you know, I think they had overestimated how committed Trump was to these policy positions he was talking about. Yeah. Um, like like we said earlier in the hour, you have been covering this for an incredibly long time. Did you kind of fall into it or was it something that you just started yes. working on and then it just never stopped? Yes, in, in elementary so. school during, during Clinton. <laughs> I've always wanted to be a healthcare policy exactly. reporter. In Canadian, I was watching in Canadian elementary school in Toronto, um, the Clinton care effort and saying, that's what I want to do when I grow up. Yeah, just um, just an, an important an important point. You know, Sarah Sarah's half Canadian, right? And yes. we are, our healthcare reporter is Paul McLeod, who, who is Canadian. And I... I think I sicked him on healthcare because I saw the success of, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of, of what a Canadian can do covering the uh, American healthcare system. You know, small but mighty. Yeah. So yeah. No, I, I just felt, I honestly like fell into the beat. Um, this was like my first job out of school. I worked at Newsweek magazine starting in 2007. And, um, oh, I was assigned to like intern on the health desk, but it wasn't like health policy. It was like, 
consumer health. So like, yeah, like, like yoga classes or whatever. Um, and then I got a full-time job in 2008 covering the election. Um, and then election ends, they have too many people on politics. They shift people around and I end up back on healthcare, but I'm really interested in politics. And this is like early 2009 when the healthcare debate is starting. And I kind of just start writing one article after another. It was actually, I'd been writing a little bit about reproductive health and there was this fight over abortion coverage that was brewing in the first, um, in like the house debate over the healthcare law. And that's kind of when I fell down a, um, a rabbit hole that I'm still in. Um, but I really like it. I, I think the thing I like about it is that I like doing kind of like the explanatory policy stuff, but that it's also like a really human story, that there's a lot of people's lives who are affected and that it's a combination of, you know, complex, nerdy policy stuff, but also like real life stories. And I think that's why I've kept doing it for so long at this point. It's not it's not because you you got to explain what the MLR provision was to me. As Kate knows, my, my my favorite. So Kate and I have covered the um the National Association of Insurance Commissioners together and the the raucous debate like, over best the, conference ever. Yes. So, yeah. Um <laughs> and this is my favorite um, ACA regulation, the medical loss ratio, which requires, well, what does it do, Kate? What, what did we learn in, in 2010? I don't think I remember. Kate! <laughs> I know. I know. Like, if you told me, I would totally remember. But I know it was so important and we were waiting for the provision forever. And we talked to all these insurance commissioners about it. And now... It's just not in my brain anymore. It the, it's the thing that requires insurance companies to spend 80% of premiums on, on actual health care There it costs. is. There it there is. There it is. The 80-20 rule. <laughs> yeah, as as everyone knows, duh. <laughs> yes. The 80-20 rule. Obviously. Um, how, long, how long did you live in Canada? I lived in Canada till I was 11. I, my parents are American, but I was born in Canada because my dad actually used to be a journalist and was working for the Montreal Gazette. And yeah. um, lived there till I was eleven. Do you do you think like having having your Canadian background has has impacted how you cover American healthcare at all? Just like since there's universal healthcare there, I mean, do you think about the Canadian healthcare system too? Yeah, not as much to be honest, because I think when I, I moved when I was so young, but it was kind of I was actually up in Canada last week um, visiting with. Um, some, you know, my, my brother's girlfriend is from Canada and visiting with her family. And everyone wanted to complain about the Canadian healthcare system. Um, they wanted to complain mom. about it? Oh, yeah. Um, well, yeah. It, it, I, I showed up on a day where my brother's girlfriend's grandmother had to wait a very, very long time, like 13 hours in the emergency room to get stitches. And there was a lot you. of frustration. And these wait times, like it, it is certainly true. Like the data shows like Canada has significant wait times. Um, and this was what a lot of people I talked to, like wanted to talk about. They all said they'd prefer it to like what we have in the U S but right. wanted it to be known that it's not like some, you know, magical land of unlimited healthcare that, you know, dreamscape. Yes. Yes. Um, it's not a hellscape, but it's not a dreamscape either. <laughs> one time, one Halloween, Sarah dressed as the Canadian <laughs> healthcare system and, uh, she, and Kate dressed as like, where's Waldo. Yeah, she was all beaten up and had a, like, she was walking around with, like, a beaver. And everyone just thought you were a hockey player, though. They did. It really, I thought yeah. that, that. No one that got would, it, Sarah. 
I thought it would hit in a nerdy community like DC, but I, I was pretty wrong. Yeah. Uh, I want to know if there's any, I know we talked about the um, the Trump voters in Kentucky. What other kind of real life stories people you've reported on that have sort of stuck with you through the years of reporting on this? Um, I think, well, there's one family I've been following over the past few months um, who they have this six-year-old boy named Timmy Morrison who stands to be greatly affected by lifetime limits and whether they're hmm. kept in place or not. So he's a kid who, you know, spent the first six months of his life in the NICU, racked up like $2 million in medical bills there, has had a million dollars in medical bills since he... Um, has a tracheostomy tube, um, you know, which means that, you know, he has a lot of medical needs related to that. Um, he has a feeding tube as well. He's, you know, I don't want to make him seem super sick because he's actually like a kid who like rides his scooter and, you know, is, he's, a, a, yeah. he's like a first grader. Um, and, and when right. you meet him, he's like super energetic, energetic and won't sit still. Um, but, you know, he, there's been some back and forth about whether or not the Affordable Care Act banned lifetime limits. Before the ACA, a number of employer-sponsored plans would cap benefits at like $1 million or $5 million. The Affordable Care Act essentially says you can't do that, the unlimited health benefits. Um, and that provision actually went into effect six days before Timmy was born. So it, you know, went into effect the 23rd of September, 2010. He was born mm -hmm. the 29th and immediately had like massive, massive medical bills. Um, and, and, you know, I think the reason that one is stuck with me is because this is like a super small provision of the healthcare law. Like it's two paragraphs. It's not the insurance expansion. But for this one family, it's like really the whole ball game. Like they really depend on this like really small provision. And there was a lot of confusion in the House bill. Like, is it keeping lifetime limits? Is it not? Is, you know, you tweak one thing and this changes. It felt like almost an afterthought. And I think that story reminded me there's so much going on in this bill that if mm -hmm. you repeal it, you might hurt some people who you didn't mean to. Like, I don't think anyone wants to take away health insurance from a six-year-old boy, but that could be the possible outcome of changes you're making elsewhere in the bill. So I, I thought that was like a helpful reminder of this being a really sprawling bill and, you know, Things that are footnotes in the bill are the whole ball game for some people. Right. It's a, it's a huge part of our economy, right? Like it's a huge part of and it affects everyone. It is so unbelievably personal. Yeah. Like you can't just make sweeping changes. And then once people have things, it's it's very difficult to take away from folks. Yeah. And I think the um, like one of the hard things is how quickly everything is moving. So you don't even feel like you get enough time to understand the sweeping changes. Um, so that's also been a like the lifetime limits thing that only, you know, the House bill comes out. It only came out like a week later after some think tanks and analyzed it and the Wall Street Journal wrote about it like, oh, these other changes you were making, actually, they get rid of lifetime limits, even though you didn't mean to. So the speed at which they're legislating, like makes it harder to see what the changes would actually be. Yeah. Um, how... How much have you seen, like, the coverage of healthcare change in the, you know, years that you've been doing this? I, think I mean, Twitter's changed yeah. a lot. Yeah. Like, they're, like, just the way, the way we cover legislation has changed super dramatically. Yeah, well, it's fine. I actually, I remember the reason I signed up for Twitter was because I was in New York working for Newsweek covering the healthcare debate, and Twitter was the way I could 
I could see what the Hill reporters were hearing. Mm -hmm. So I remember like following people like Jeff Young, for example, um, or I forget who exactly else was on the beat at that time, but they were like at these long stakeouts and that was like the fastest way to get information instead of waiting for the stories to post. So I remember that was the reason I signed up for Twitter was so I could follow all these Hill reporters um, who were getting the latest updates. It feels like it's gotten a lot faster. I mean, you probably have thoughts on this as well. Just things move super, super quickly. Um, and yeah, I think that's the biggest change I've noticed. I think also a little more polarized too, that, you know, I think this is just a reflection of the media getting more polarized, but it is easier now to like read two totally different versions of what the Affordable Care Act is doing. Like one where it's right. giving people health insurance and puppies and like one where it's like, a vicious hellscape of like murdering puppies. Um, <laughs> it's like really, it's like diverged so much that you could like read two totally. And both of them probably have elements that are true. Like it's true that the Affordable Care Act is expanding coverage and some people really got their premiums raised, but right. it's really easy just to like have one side of that story easier than it was, I think, a few years ago. I think uh, another thing that's really changed with sort of Twitter and people paying so much more attention to what's happening on social media, like members of Congress paying more attention to social media, after your story um, came out about members of Congress kind of exempting themselves from the bill, right, back yeah. to the House bill, there was such outrage <laughs> and it was crazy and it was fast. And like by the next day, they were walking that back and saying, we're right. going to take it out. We're going to do something. It was crazy. That cra that. I woke up the next morning and Mark Meadows from the Freedom Caucus is saying, no, this isn't in the bill. Um, you were like, was, it's actually it's actually right there. <laughs> it's, right. And I was like freaking out a little bit because I was like, oh, shit. Like, what if like, I'm pretty sure this is right. Um, and it turned yeah. out it was 100 percent right. But um, it's weird to be in the middle of that, too, to like see that play out on Twitter as like the reporter in the middle of it. Um, and like, I don't know, do you like defend yourselves and like pick a fight with Mark Meadows or just like wait for it to play out? I'm more of a wait for it to play out <laughs> person. Um, but there are, um, it's easier to screw up too, right? Like it's easier to say something dumb and have that reverberate very far. Right. Um, and I think that like the other big difference between covering the original passage and covering things now is we just you could watch hearings on C-SPAN. Yeah. And now there are no hearings or everything's being done really behind closed doors. And, and, and that's, I think, really affected the way that people are able to cover it. Um, you know, everything's sort of coming out in this like tiny drip. Right. Like, yeah. From behind the scenes sources. Yeah, I remember watching so many C-SPAN hearings in 2009 and 2010, like just settling into my cubicle and like putting on my headphones and like that's what I was going to do for the day to the point where I was like, oh, like too many hearings. And now like in the Senate process, we haven't had a single hearing and that's not going to happen. We had two markups in the House. It, it seems effective in a way, right? Like it's hard to cover a hearing that's not happening, but I think it actually... I mean, I'm curious for your read on this. It might be backfiring on McConnell a little bit that his members also feel blindsided, like yeah. in hiding it from the press. He's also hiding it from his members. And it's really hard. Like we saw that with the failed vote two weeks ago. Like you can't like hide a bill from your membership and then like ask them to vote for it for a week later. It turns and then, out, and like, then they find they, they find out what's in it and they're like, right. mm, no, sorry. 
Right. And like the grand plan is, oh, they just won't have time to read it and vote for it. Like, I get that he's a master, you know, strategist of some sort, but I don't know. It doesn't really ever had. He's never had to do anything this big before. I think he's been in the opposition. It's never been like a lot of like affirmatively legislating. Right. Right. And he was very good at at fighting Reed and he was kind of good at getting what he needed from his members and protecting them from bad votes and taking a lot of heat. And this is so different because this is like we said before, like it affects every single person. Every constituent is going to have an opinion. And Mitch McConnell would also like to keep his majority uh, in Congress. Um, uh, My last question for you is uh, how fun slash annoying is it when people come up and ask which health insurance they should get? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's... So, no, I, I don't get that a lot, like, from, like, random people who know my healthcare reporting. Like, I've never, but I get it a lot at work when everyone's like, oh, which health insurance are you choosing? And, like, I'll just choose whatever Sarah Cliff is choosing. Um, I'm actually. <laughs> and you're like, no, don't do that. Um, I'm kind of excited. So um, since I just got married this year, my husband and I are going to shop for health insurance and he works for the government and they have so many choices. And I'm really excited to like, like we just have two choices here at Vox to really, really dig, like I'm going to get all the benefits. Like I'm going to, I'm going to really research this one. You're going to dive right in. This is like, this is like the romantic night <laughs> for you guys. It I is. Can see it now. Yeah. Just like reading over provisions of there'll your health insurance. Sp- there'll be spreadsheets. Um, there'll be explanations <laughs> of benefits. It is going to be a lovely Saturday night date. Um, all right. I will let you go report on the uh, the latest health care bill that's coming out of the Senate. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Kate. It has been a total pleasure. And just another reminder that we are officially in summer series mode which means we're airing episodes every other week that feature a deep dive interview like the one you just heard with a really interesting person who has a lot of interesting things to say. We're off next week, but we'll be back the week after July 28th with an interview. No One Knows Anything is produced by Meg Kramer, Eleanor Kagan, and Agarina Shashagre. The show is edited by Catherine Miller. Production support comes from Veronica Doolin. Our music is by Beauty Pill. You can find us on Twitter at Kate Nocera and at C. Charlie is off today, but he'll be back soon. <laughs>